Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Welcome to the Casting Across Fly Fishing Podcast. I'm Matthew of castingacross.com, where I explore the quarry and culture of fly fishing. This is the 61st episode of the podcast and it is being recorded in January of 2020. Generally speaking, this isn't a serial-style podcast. There are a few exceptions in the archives, but I try to keep things so that you can drop in whenever you'd like, and you're not feeling like you're going to miss anything. You're not having to catch up, although I certainly would advise you to catch up as you have the opportunity to do so. Lots of great fly fishing tidbits and attempts at fly fishing humor in the archives. But because it is January... There's only really a few topics and a few parts of fly fishing subject matter that are particularly timely in the middle of winter, particularly for a more trout-forward crowd, which I assume a good chunk of my audience is. Hopefully I'm not alienating the salt guys and the bass guys and the musky guys and the carp guys and the, you know, the diversity that we have within fly fishing. But when it comes to trout fishing, in January... There's only a few things we can talk about on the podcast that are very, very pertinent to the present moment. The first one, to be fair, is winter trout fishing tactics. Now, for whatever chunk of the fly fishing community there is, there's a much smaller chunk that consistently fishes in the wintertime, and that is fine. I actually think it's good. There's been seasons of my life where I've kind of backed off from fly fishing in the middle of the winter. There's actually been seasons of my life where I've backed off from fly fishing in the middle of the summer. And it's been good. It's been refreshing. It, it don't feel like I'm having to leave my fly fishing fan or avid angler card at the door by doing so. You can still be very committed and a big fly fisher, a huge fly fisher, if you will, and not fish for a couple of months. In the middle of winter, particularly if it's incredibly cold where you live, or because of your age or any sort of other impairment that would make fly fishing in the wintertime, moving 
off-road in the wintertime, dangerous or less than fun, it totally makes sense. And for a lot of us, you know, if it gets dark at 5 o'clock, then you're not going to be fishing Monday to Friday, and you have a lot of catch-up to do around the house and with family and things like that Saturday and Sunday. So although I do get out to fish in the winter a lot, and I used to do it a ton, I can certainly understand why some people aren't going to be fly fishing in the winter. So talking about fly fishing tactics for the winter is a great topic, but that does alienate a certain segment of the audience. Another thing that you can talk about when you talk about fly fishing in the wintertime is fly tying. Fly tying conversations on podcasts generally aren't too riveting for me. If you get a little bit of smattering here and there or about you know how to use a material or maybe some theory, then that's fine. But by and large, you know, hearing about how many wraps someone's making, about how they're laying in uh, a tail, about how they're fastening it in, that is much more suited to YouTube, much more suited to a live demonstration. Now, there is a great exception. Whenever Tom Rosenbauer and Tim Flagler talk about off-the-wall materials and kind of some really entertaining theoretical and practical fly-tying things, those are certainly worth tuning into. I always enjoy the Orvis Fly Fishing Guide podcast when Tom Rosenbauer has Tim Flagler on. But a, I'm not a fly tying expert, and B, I don't want to take up 20 minutes of your time talking about fly tying. So that leaves us with our third major pillar of fly fishing conversation in the wintertime, and that's gear. And some of you may be saying hooray, and some of you may be saying boo and hiss, because talking about gear or listening about gear is the last thing you want to do because you're sick and tired of the commercialism. It was just Christmas. You don't want to talk about having more stuff. You're content with the things you have. But the reality is, is that now is the time if you need something or if you want something, but specifically if you need something, now is the time to make that happen. And here's why, especially if you aren't fishing as much, you want to take advantage of these moments. Plus, this is the best time when the new stuff is on the market and when the old stuff is being put on sale. So whether that be boots, or whether that be fly tying materials, or whether it be a new fly rod, now's the time to strike while the iron's hot. I'm not sure exactly what all of the industry undercurrents are, but I know that January, February are big months for new gear being released, especially some of that um, uh, premium gear, you know, rods and reels and whatnot. It makes sense. New year. And additionally, I mean, fly shops have to fall in line with that, not only because they have it available to them, but I got my big fat Bass Pro Shop Cabela catalog in the mail yesterday. And so that means that those rods, reels, all the way down to, you know, your leader straightener or whatever silly $2 gadget you can buy, the brand new versions of those things are available with one click at the big box stores. So for the fly shops to be competitive, they have to fall in line and do that as well. So it really is a good time to think about buying something. And what more fun can you have than thinking about buying a new fly rod? So I know there's a million how to buy the new best fly rod articles and podcasts and YouTube videos that are out there. And especially if you already have an arsenal of a dozen fly rods out there, you know how this works. That being said, I think we can all use an opportunity to reflect and think about, am I going about this the right way? If I'm going to be making a sizable purchase, and for you that might be $150, or it might be $1,500 for a new fly rod. 
and I think it's just a, a wise thing to stop and go through the motions in your head of why I'm doing what I'm doing. So there's some pretty simple things that, I mean, you have to consider anytime you go to buy a new fly rod. What weight are you going to buy? How much you want to spend? Does it work? And really, you know, is that work for you is probably the, the better question to ask. But I want to talk about those things uh, kind of generally, but then maybe come at it from some different angles. Things that you may very well have thought of, but maybe not. And that is, I, I think, a worthwhile adventure to, to go on in the middle of January. And here's another reason why. You have opportunities to get into fly shops and to fly fishing shows and cast these rods now in a way that you might not in April. That's not to say that you can't go to your fly shop and cast fly rods in April. But in April, A, you're already behind the eight ball as far as fishing season goes, and B, they're going to be a lot busier in some ways. Not to say that a good fly shop shouldn't give you the opportunity to cast whenever you want to go in if you're going to be an actual, legitimate, sincere customer, but you also kind of want to take advantage of this time that you have and go do it now. Fly fishing shows also provide a really cool opportunity because you go and you have that full display. So if your local fly shop is smaller, then you're not going to have the 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 weights in the multiple lengths for that particular series of rods you want to try and then the exact comparable series from another manufacturer that you'd want to compare that to. At the fly fishing show, you will have that opportunity. Moreover, you're going to be able to cast them back to back right away. It's it's designed to do that. And more often than not, there's going to be a retailer within that show that's going to be able to sell you that rod. The manufacturer is not going to sell you that rod, but there are brick-and-mortar fly shops that pack up shop for the week or for the few months to attend some of these fly fishing expos, and they go and they set up shop. So it's not that you're buying from the manufacturer or you're buying from some nameless, faceless entity and you're cutting out the you know, fly shops and the small businesses, this is actually an opportunity that's created for the fly shops that have the ability to do this. So they're the larger fly shops, but they're still brick and mortar fly shops that take the time to go to these shows. And as you cast the rods out on the pond and say, you know what, I love this. I don't want to go another day without this rod. Instead of you hopping online and buying it directly from that manufacturer, the manufacturer will gladly say, hey, go around the corner to such and such fly shop. They've got a setup where I think they probably have three or four of these rods. You can pick them up. And if they don't have it, there's probably somebody else in the building that does. It's a great opportunity. And it's really nice to be able to compare a four and a five weight if you're kind of on the fence. And whereas your local fly shop might not have two of the premier brands because it's a hard thing for a smaller fly shop to do, at the show you'll be able to cast the Sage and the Scott or the Orvis and the Thomas and Thomas and the Winston back to back to back. Now, some fly shops have that opportunity and to be fair, I don't think you need to cast all five of those labels to make an informed decision. I think because of price points and because of a number of other factors, being able to cast two or three of them is probably more than enough. And then, of course, there's a dozen other great fly rod manufacturers that are out there. All right, that's all kind of more theoretical. Let's get very practical. So, weight. Now, obviously, you know what weight fly rod you want, or do you? Now, here's what I mean. It's so incredibly preliminary, it can't be overlooked. If you're going to seriously shop for another fly rod, you must have the designated line weight nailed down. 
Now, that doesn't mean that you're committing wholeheartedly to it, but you have to start somewhere, all right? And knowing that you want an eight weight for smallmouth bass fishing in the springtime allows you to go in the buying process with a frame of reference. So as you go deeper, the seven weight in that series or the nine weight in that series might leave an impression on you that steers you in that direction. And ultimately, you know, we have to remember that the number that the builder, the manufacturer puts on that rod makes a very, very, very strong suggestion to us. And contrary to popular belief and really to practice, the graphite won't explode if you overline or underline a rod. So when you go and you say, I want that eight weight for smallmouth bass fishing, I fish rivers for smallmouth and I'd be able to throw big, heavy hair bugs and heavy nymphs on sinking lines. And I want to be able to do that effortlessly. You might get out there and say, you know what, this seven weight and, you know, I feel bad for seven weights. I love a seven weight. Seven weight is awesome for Great Lakes steelhead. A seven weight is great for smallmouth. Seven weight is great for streamers, for trout. But poor seven weights don't get the kind of love that they deserve. Anyway, you might cast the seven weight and say, you know what? This has the right feel that I was going for. I just cast a lot of eights, and so I thought that's what I, I wanted. And so to be able to cast the seven and the eight and maybe the six, throw it in there to get that frame of reference, now that might steer you in a different direction. And what that might do is allow you to get into some different lengths. They might have a 10-foot 7-weight, whereas they don't have a 10-foot 8-weight. And why would you want a 10-foot rod? Well, I mean, there's a number of reasons why. If you're fishing out of a canoe or you're fishing out of a kayak, if you are going to be doing a lot of mending, if you are nymphing for smallmouth or using that for Great Lakes steelhead, for example, having a 10-foot rod might be a, a, a great uh help and not a hindrance. And you might be able to get into that if you do try that seven weight out. And of course, this can go in any direction. You might want a five weight because for whatever reason in your brain, you have five weight pounded into your head, but you get on the casting pound and the five weight feels a little bit slower than you'd like. So say, hey, can I have a four weight reel lined up with four weight line, of course, and throw that on there and give that a cast. Say, you know what? I love it. This casts exactly what I had in my mind. Now, is that blasphemous to flower manufacturers? I'm sure there'd be some that were offended by that, but it happens way more often than we talk about. It's just so simple for us as, you know, relatively informed anglers to just go and buy the rod and the reel and the line that kind of all match as far as the numbers go. And to be fair, it's easy for an employee of a shop who might not be super informed or might not have all the nuance or maybe is the same person at a big box store or something like that to just say yeah you get the 555 and just you know make it work well there's a lot more nuance there and you have opportunities to do that especially when you can have some time put on different lines put on different real weights even you know get a bigger bulk of your reel does that change the balance of how you cast we can't ignore the nuance and the subtlety of what small things like the amount of weight in a reel and the weight distribution that that puts onto a rod and how that changes your cast, especially if you are a little bit more wristy and say, well, I don't cast with my wrist. I have proper form. I cast with my elbow. Yes, but there's wristiness. I don't think that's a word, but you know what it means involved in every cast. And so the amount of weight on your reel, that's going to make a big difference. And then of course, as you change lengths of rods, all of that weight distribution 
is going to change up significantly. So the more you cast, the more you know, the more opportunities you have to kind of winnow down what you're actually looking for. Of course, you might walk out of there saying, I wanted a five-weight rod, and I still want a five-weight rod, and I bought a five-weight rod. Great, awesome, no complaints there. It's just really cool to go in kind of with more of a nebulous, fuzzy, general concept of, of what you want to accomplish with your new fly rod rather than the fly rod that you want. You want to put something in a board, but you need to have the flexibility and the openness that it might be a nail that you hit in with a hammer, it might be a screw that you put on the screwdriver, or it might be a really fancy bolt that you shoot in there with a power tool. The next thing is very common sense, and again, it's price. I would say it's second only to picking a line weight. When you establish this criterion, it's going to do more for you than anything else. Are you in such a position financially that money is absolutely not a concern? Then you can skip this step. And honestly, don't just go to the top of the, the barrel. Um, there are rods in the mid-range that are going to outperform rods at the high range based upon what you want that rod to do. And once again, I've said this a million times, and people much smarter than myself have said it, based upon your casting stroke. Also, by the way, if money is not a concern, you know my email address. Make a nice donation to Casting Across. Thank you very much. However, for most of us, a price range is really a beneficial thing. If you can spend $700 on a rod, then by all means, spend up to $700. You could probably look in the range between $450 and $700. There's more fly rods than you can count in that range. There's the premium rods of some of the smaller brands and the mid-range rods to the larger brands. That's a lot of things for you to look at. Similarly, if $300 in your budget, that's totally fine too. These days, there's plenty of quote-unquote economy rods or entry-level rods, which don't be scared of that language. I've casted some amazing $200 fly rods, and it's definitely not worth putting your nose up in the air at something like that. That being said, the tech and the components in the higher-end models will justify that purchase if your ledger can accommodate such an expense. And that's another great, again, criteria you can set is this dollar to this dollar, and there's always something for every price range. But then, of course, does it work? This is absolutely the most essential and necessary part of buying a fly rod. Can you cast it? Not can the magazine say it casts, not can the celebrity fly caster say it can cast, not can some reviews say it can cast, can you cast it? With your casting stroke, are you able to feel it load well? Or do you have to significantly alter how you cast to compensate for the action and the length? I mean, if you have to work hard to make the $800 fly rod cast, then find another $800 fly rod. So do you fish for trout on small streams? How does it perform at 20 feet or 30 feet? It doesn't matter if you can unload a whole spool of four weight line and say, well, it doesn't really, I, I struggle to, to get the loop to open up. I, I'm really starting to tail at, at 80 foot, 90 foot. It doesn't matter. Does the rod seem like a tool that will help you delicately and precisely lay midges where you want at 35 feet, not 80 feet? So if you're fishing for big game or in the salt, which line shoots the straightest? This is a whole other uh, facet of fly rod manufacturing and it has become within marketing in the last maybe five years. What kind of straightness or what kind of vibrations or lateral movement is this rod going to generate based upon your casting stroke? And consequently, will that line lay out straight? 
you'll notice this as your loops are looked at. Are they tighter? And is there wiggle when you're laying that line down? And those are things to think about. Again, if there's a $1,000 rod and it wiggles because it's a little slower and your application of power is such that it's a little bit stronger when you go to lay down that line, especially at a, a longer length with a heavier fly, and this one's going to just vibrate a little bit too much because it, it flexes a little bit further down towards the butt, then you might want to find a stiffer rod. Just because this is the rod that everyone is saying is the best rod for musky fishing, it might not be the best rod for you. Does that mean also, and this is a totally other topic, that maybe you have some significant deficiencies in your casting stroke? Now that's a little bit of an overstatement. How about this? You have some minor areas of improvement in your casting stroke. That's easy to accept and digest because we all have areas of improvement in our casting stroke. And oftentimes they do manifest themselves in that final application of power. And so that little bit of wiggle and that lack of straightness is something that we can all work on because we get excited and we try to throw that line down and we try to push a little bit more out. And we do silly things with our wrists and our elbow and our hips and our shoulders and on and on and on and on. But all that to say, if one rod struggles in that one component of your cast, a very important component of your cast, if you're trying to make accurate, pinpoint accurate presentations in front of tailing fish, then you might want to try a different rod. Your skill, it's a huge variable. And if you've never picked up a two-handed rod or you've never picked up a, a saltwater rod if you're a trout fisher or a small mountain stream rod if you're a saltwater fisher, don't expect that the top-of-the-line model is going to mitigate and get rid of inadequacies in, in learning to cast in that part of fly fishing. At the same time, some rods will help hide some of those weaknesses for beginners. But this element of the process will help you kind of decide things like, okay, I want the nine foot versus the eight and a half foot. I do actually want to go for the uh, upper mid range model rather than the top of the line model, just because it, it, it adapts to my casting stroke a little bit better. Those are things to, to definitely think about. And lastly, enjoy the process. Take notes. Bring a friend. If you do that at a fly shop, bring treats for the guys at the fly shop. Whatever their favorite thing is, donuts or beer or whatever it is, bring that to them and make it an adventure and a, a day out. Also talk to them. Chances are they know what they're doing and they can point things out, not just about the rods, but about your cast. Like, well, the reason that that one you're struggling with is because it's a fast action rod and you're really waiting to begin your forward cast. And so that loop is almost all the way underneath you before you make that forward cast. And so that's why you're really having a problem generating line speed on your forward cast. Something like that. They're watching you do it. They can't, you can't see yourself cast in the same way that somebody can objectively, especially somebody who has a lot of experience with this. So bring them along and again, be nice to them, bring them treats. And don't feel guilty about doing it, especially if you're going to make that purchase. Definitely, definitely don't just go hop on Amazon afterwards to save 10 bucks or to get a free handful of stickers or something. I mean, do right by the people that are investing in you because they're probably not doing it just to sell you a fly rod. They're trying to generate a customer that becomes a relationship that becomes a long-term customer. That's a lot of kind of rambling thoughts about fly rod purchasing, but it really boils down to start with a rod line weight in mind, nail down your price, and then cast, cast, cast. And as you do those things, think about it in a multifaceted way. Don't just think about how far you can cast the thing. 
Don't just think about if it feels good on the pavement. Think about real-world applications. Do it with your left hand. Cast both over your right shoulder and over your left shoulder. Think about that fly rib that you love. Even if it's a five weight and you're casting a seven weight, what are some of the things you're constantly doing with that five weight that you love? Is this seven weight, although a very different rod, going to be used in very different circumstances, able to do some of those similar things, or are there major drawbacks to the way this rod feels? And if that's the case, then maybe try something else. You don't need all your fly rods to feel the same, but you also don't want to be put in a situation where something feels like an encumbrance, especially a $700 encumbrance. Nobody wants that. Any other great tips that you have on buying a fly rod? I know there's a lot of things that could be brought to the table that I'd left off. Some of it purposefully because it was huge rabbit trails. Some of it just because I didn't think about it. But if you have some tips, tricks, experiences, let me know. Castingacross.com on the show notes for this page, episode 61. Or uh, just shoot me an email, Matthew at castingacross.com. I'd love to hear it. Love to read about it. This week on Casting Across, first article is called Enemies of the Fly Fisher, Volume 1, The Muskrat. I don't like muskrats. That's essentially what the article is about. You can read it. There's a lot more to it there. Next article is called Throwback Gear Review, The Teton Reel. I've done a couple of these throwback gear reviews, but this is a reel that was probably produced about 25 years ago. Maybe, maybe that. I can't tell by the serial number. There's not a lot of records. Maybe less than that. But regardless, I've had it for almost 20 years, and it's still going strong. It does not look like a saltwater reel. It does not have the same uh, components as contemporary saltwater reels, but it is my go-to walk on the beach in New England saltwater reel, and it performs admirably with the stripers that I catch, big bass that I've caught on freshwater, uh, big trout that I caught stripping streamers, and so I've got nothing but good things to say about this reel that is kind of a least likely reel for the circumstances that I put it through, but talk a little bit about that in this post on the website. This week's recommendation on the podcast, nothing new. I know I'm cycling back through some of these recommendations, but the reality is there's some things that kind of rise to the top that I think probably are worth mentioning more than once. And this go around, it is the fly fishing show. So I know there's lots of fly fishing shows out there, and there's a lot of great fly fishing shows out there, but this is the fly fishing show. The one that starts in early January out in Denver, and then weaves its way through other places in the country, kind of hits its uh, high point at Edison, New Jersey, and ends up wrapping up in, I believe, Lancaster, Pennsylvania in March. But I will be at the Marlboro, Massachusetts show, and I will be at the Edison, New Jersey show. Both shows, I uh, will be there at least one day. Edison, I'll probably be there two days. Uh, I will be helping out at the VitaVu gear booth. I'm not professionally affiliated with VitaVu, but I believe in their people and I like their products. So I'm happy to help out there. So I'll be kind of buzzing around there. Feel free to chirp at me at social media if you want and say hi. I'm always happy to talk to people who I might see chirps and uh, screen names and things like that, but it's awesome to be able to put a face with a name. So link to the fly fishing show, dates, schedules, etc. will be on the show notes of this podcast. Thanks for listening to the Casting Across Fly Fishing Podcast. Please subscribe in your favorite podcast app and rate the podcast on iTunes. Then head over to castingacross.com where you'll find more info on this podcast and three posts a week on the people, places, and things that go into the pursuit of fish. Thank you.